At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields relating to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some of the most important issues of our time. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today's bonus podcast is a rebroadcast of our monthly seed class, where our seed expert, Bill McDormand, shares some seed wisdom and discusses news and concerns that might occupy the thoughts of those of us that are saving seeds. Welcome, Bill. Hello, everybody. I'm sitting here in Cornville, Arizona on a beautiful uh-huh. evening. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. So let's start by saying, if you look on the right, if you're on the web interface, look on the right there. You can shoot us your questions by tossing them there. While you're thinking of your questions, we are going to jump in and get started talking about sourcing seeds tonight, I believe. Is that not the topic? Yes, I think it's a timely topic. I see more and more lists these days in social media of the 100, the 200 seed catalogs mm-hmm. or lists of free seed catalogs or even lists of free seeds that catalog companies will send you. And so as many gardeners, especially in the northern latitudes, start to make serious decisions about what they're going to plant this year, seeds are, you know, in their lives right now. I thought it appropriate, you know me, Greg, to address the topic. Yeah. The cool thing about you is that you're kind of on the front lines of seeds and seed saving. So you're getting to see what's really happening in the moment, which is cool. You know, there's probably lots happening even I don't know about. And maybe that's something that I've learned over 35 years being around the seed businesses, you know, I kept thinking I was going to turn over the golden boulder and find all the information, you know, (laughs) everybody that grows everything and how they sell it and what goes on, you know, and I've just never found it. It's a disparate and disconnected world in some ways still. And in the beginning, when I was young and trying to start my own small seed company, that was a real frustration. But now I've come to really enjoy that because I think it's a reflection of what's left of its connection to our planet and biology. I mean, everybody that does things has to do it differently if they're really honest and integral about what they're doing with seeds. It's taking place within an ecological construct, which is where they live. And so... Yeah, there's always things going on and always experts and always things popping up everywhere. And if anything, maybe what I've come to represent to a lot of people is someone who at least recognizes that, you know, I love new, new stories about new 
home runs and new seed heroes that nobody's ever heard about before yeah. that have been doing incredible work for 20 years or 30 years or more in their lives. And so that's what I expect to see more of and what we're really trying to bring them forward as role models and encourage everybody that's listening to become one because, boy, do we need them. Yeah, cool. Sourcing seeds. Yeah. Well, so let me just start with the list a little bit that I see. For a couple of years, it just frustrated me. Here is where you can buy your seeds. And it's true. The list is good. And there are uh, lots of great companies on them. And there's lots of great seeds you could get from those companies. I don't want to sound like that's what's bothering me. What bothered me was that they listed as though this was the only place you could get your seed, that you had to buy them. I've never believed that was true. And as I've done more research and now we've got, you know, we've done probably 45 seed schools Mm-hmm. With over a thousand graduates, I know now that the best seats actually are probably the ones you save yourself for a whole number of reasons. If you've got questions about that or want me to convince you of that tonight, please come at me because the more I read and the more I experience and the more I'm around, the more I'm convinced that buying seats is secondary. That should be your backup, your plan B. If you have to have something and that's the only way you can get it, then do Mm -hmm. that. Right, a place to start. Yeah, well, the place to start is right in your own community and find seats that are already adapted to where you are. There's just so many reasons why you should look to a seed exchange or a seed library or your neighbors or someone else for your seeds first. Those are the best seeds. Mm -hmm. You know, it's relatively easy to explain the reason why. That's what seeds do. They have this incredible built-in ability to self-replicate intelligently. Yeah. You know, so not only do they self-replicate, essentially inside each seed are millions more, but the millions more that can come out of that down the road can actually be adapted. It can be changed to where you live. And when you buy seeds, you're starting over. You have no idea where those seeds were grown again in most cases. It's only in the last two or three or four years have I personally seen seed catalogs that actually say we grow all our own seeds here, very few of those, and some now and new seed co-ops, which will list exactly where the seeds were grown, even though they weren't grown by the company themselves. And so that helps a lot because then you can see exactly what kind of a climate and you can get a similar climate to where you are. But other than that, almost all the seeds that you buy in packets are grown thousands of miles away, sometimes by large contractors, some come from overseas. Even some of our favorite seed catalog companies in this country are contracting in China now to get their certified organic. Yeah. And so I love the small packet seed industry, you know, the mail order people, especially the smaller bioregional people or the regionally focused people. And so I'm not going to name any names. You know, one of the exercises we do in our seed schools is to look through catalogs and teach people to look through more carefully and try to suss out this kinds of information. But, you know, if you take anything away from tonight, I hope it's that I am going to buy my seeds better if I have to buy them. Mm-hmm. All right. And I hope to dissuade you of the notion that they're actually better because in many cases now, the best seeds for what you want to do are starting to appear where you are and you are needed in this new growing network of growers in your area to help grow those out, help select them further and help them get back into the comments in your area so that everyone around you can be stronger as a result of your work. And like, what's more cool than that? Being part right. of an important part of your community and it's, yeah. you know, and it's survival. And yeah, it's really exciting, actually. For those communities that don't have seed libraries or seed exchanges or so on and so on, that that's the first place to start is you actually have to buy seed. And can I 
say that, you know, a basil seed, you know, if you're buying it in a packet, is a basil seed, and really what there is for us to do is to buy it and grow it out and save the seeds. Exactly. You know, I often thought that the seed companies of the future, and I, Don Tipping at Cisco Seed says this so eloquently, my job, he says now, and that certainly is the way I saw it when I had Seeds Trust High Altitude Gardens, my job was not to sell you your seeds every year. My job was to find exotic and incredible new things that were adapted to, in my case, the high elevation growing regions of the world and make those available for you so that you could buy them and start saving your own from those things. And there's enough diversity out there and we need enough brought back into our system. Maybe, you know, as they say, 90% of it's gone in the last two generations. We have a lot of work to do to rebuild a resilient agricultural system. So, yeah, bringing new things in, whether you buy them or whatever you do, you travel and bring them back yourself. That's really important to do. But, yeah, that's it. You know, buy them. But when you do buy them, you know, only with the idea that you're going to start saving them. Cool. So should we jump over and look and see if there's any questions around this? Well, you can pepper in questions all the time. I have a couple of things to say to people because what I've learned in our seed schools is at this point, people go, wait a minute. First of all, I don't have time. You know, ah. I'm a modern gardener and I just don't have time. And, you know, my response is in 1989, I was in a city of 1.2 million people. Uh-huh. It had eight major universities, 70,000 PhDs living there, Subway. It was as modern and as busy a city as any in the world at the time. And it was called Novosibirsk. It was in Siberia, uh-huh. part of the modern Soviet Union. And everybody I met there, everybody gardened and everybody saved all. Yeah, their own seed, you know, so we can do this. Seed saving is part and parcel of gardening. And if you set it up, sometimes they save themselves, right? Your right. basil story is one of the stories we tell, you know, yeah. seed schools now. Basil, parsley, oregano, nasturtiums, these are, lettuce. These are all things that I just let go to seed. So it really doesn't take a lot of time. And in the case of all those things that I just mentioned, it doesn't take any time for me because what I do is I let things grow out. I let them go to seed and I let the seeds, you know, spread themselves in my landscape so that what happens year after year after year is, you know, the seeds just replant themselves. And we picked some parsley recently in the backyard about two weeks ago, and it was actually sweet. Wow. There was, you know, it had a parsley taste, but it tasted sweet. Do you think that's because of the winter? You know, sometimes in colder weather, it sweetens up things like kale and stuff. But I've never had that with parsley. Wow, yeah, that's great. Good question. Good great question. sweet. So, Parsley. Yeah, there you go. Need, well, yeah. when we do when we do the seed up, I always hand out parsley seeds. So there you go. I'm going to get yeah. some next time. Yeah. So the, the to your point that you don't have time to save seeds, I just prove you don't need to. All you got to do is you got to let some of the things go to seed in your landscape. Yeah. The part of the I don't have time is part of this misconception. I think we've all been, as my Nicaraguan friend Chispa once said when she looked at me and she said, "You people are all wash-brained." <laughs> She was talking about Americans and how we thought about Central America. And I think we've all been wash-brained about seeds in an industrial way. We think, how am I going to thresh them? How am I going to clean them? How am I going to package them? How am I going to make them look like the seeds that I buy? Right. You know, that's going to take a lot of time. And the truth is you don't have to. As you said, the easiest is just let them fall on the ground and come up. We all know volunteers work better anyway, usually. Right, yep. You know And if you live in a harsh climate, you have to bring them in. Bring them in dirty, you know. You're the one planting them. It's just a little more compost with it. Somebody says, I can't differ. I've got all this lettuce and it went to seed and it's all mixing and all the seeds are mixed up and, you know, I can't straighten it out or whatever. Great. Just plant salad, harvest salad, you know. 
That's what you're that's what you're eating anyway. You know, we can bring this back down to a backyard scale and make it work for us. We don't have to pretend like we're a seed company to do right. this. Yeah. So the other big misconception is that my seeds aren't going to be as good, right? I'm going to save seeds, mm. but it's just me. I don't know what I'm doing. This is the first time I've ever saved them. Yep. They might cross-pollinate with the neighbors. You know, I don't really know anything about this, so how do I know these are going to be good seeds? We get a lot of those questions at the first few years in a seed library especially. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I'm getting a little more hardened around this question. My answer now sometimes is like, what makes you think that you can be arrogant enough to say that? Seeds are seeds. They're magical. They know what they're doing, you yeah. know? First of all, they'll outperform and bring you more magic on more occasions in more ways than anything you ever dreamed, no matter yeah. what mistakes you make. I mean, right. it's just like that's part of the magic. We've all been dumbed down thinking that our seeds are going to be like our insurance companies or our healthcare plants or our post office when it loses things. You know, all these systems around us don't work. Well, no, the seeds work. Trust them. No matter what, it's almost in every case in my life in 30 plus years, you know, owning a small seed company, the seeds always, every time I gave up on them or questioned them in some way, they proved <laughs> me wrong. You know? right. That's the one thing in your life you can trust. Yeah. And so again, tap into that magic when you save your own seeds and trust it. And don't worry about, and I'll just add this in quickly right here, don't worry about crossing. What's the worst thing that happens is Carol Depe, the Harvard geneticist, she taught at Harvard for 25 years, came home to Oregon and started saving her own backyard garden seeds. And she said, if there's a genetic mistake in your backyard, the worst thing that can happen is that <laughs> you still get to eat. Yep. You're still gardening. Seeds mm -hmm. are all the fluff on top of that. So don't worry about crossing as far as gardening and then tune your eye up and look for those great mistakes that will actually be better yeah. for what you want. And that's what we try to teach kids in our seed schools. Yeah, it's fun. Perfect. So Seth from Tempe has a great question. So if I'm starting from scratch, what seeds should I save and not save? Can I just save the seed from a really good grocery store bell pepper or melon and grow those? Great question. Short answer, yes, you can. I mean, a lot of melons now are set up to be seedless, which is really an interesting kind of contradiction. How do you save seeds from a seedless melon? Well, it turns out that they're seedless because they're parthenocarpic. And if you leave them long enough and let them ripen long and uh, way after eating stage, you'll start to see some seeds in there and you can save those. Got it. And you could do that with peppers. Now, this brings you into a really interesting place because you have to plan on, if they're in a store, hybrids. Hybrid is a word, you know, a modern word that's the result of a first-generation cross from inbred, carefully set up parents that have been crossed to get a specific set of conditions, one of them being seedless, melons. There's a way that they can mess with the genetics in a male and a female to make sure that those the offspring don't have any seed. Are hybrids bad? No. Hybrids have been bad for home gardeners and farmers because... If you save seeds from them, the offspring, what you get and grow in your garden is a bit unpredictable. Uh -huh. You don't get the same uniformity that you got from the first generation when you planted the hybrid seed. And so for that, farmers who absolutely have to have uniformity, they have to know their crop is ready, you know, that it looks like it's supposed to look because they're going to sell it at a certain time in a certain market. It has to look a certain way. So they've never been able to save the seeds that they buy 
from hybrid crops because if they plant that, they get, all bets are off. Lots of variation could show up in their farm. Home gardeners, wow, I say bring on the diversity. Let it all come in. Most American gardeners have been taught that, no, you can't save seeds from hybrids because they don't breed true and you don't know what you're going to get. Like uh-huh. that's some sort of a bad thing. That's not bad. Hybrids are only bad in that they've convinced most of us to buy our seeds every year instead of saving them from those uh-huh. hybrid seeds. And so I want to dispel every one of the notion, that notion right now. You can save seeds from hybrids. It can be incredibly exciting. What you have to do that next generation is look through for the things that you really like again and save those. And that may be a pretty small percentage of what you grow. You can still eat almost everything else in the case of peppers and maybe even melons. But save seeds from the ones that look like the ones you want, and then plant those the next year, and you'll get even more, maybe double the next year. And in a few generations, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have all the wonderful traits, disease resistance, dwarfness, those other sorts of things that have been brought to us through hybrids. You can have those in a backyard vegetable that you can save your own seeds from. Hybrids are a little more difficult. They're a little more advanced. Uh And so to get back to your, your original question, what we try to do is if you're saving seeds from the first time, save them from one of these five vegetables first, because these are the easiest. All right. Start with a non-hybrid if you can, because then you can, if you save the seeds, they'll all look like they did the first generation. That's what open pollinated or non-hybrid means. And if you save seeds to tomatoes, peppers, peas, beans, or lettuce, and almost everybody grows at least some of those. Yep. If you save seeds to those, in most cases, do what a breeder would call breed true. Those are self-pollinating crops. The flowers and all of those are set up so that they exchange pollen between the male and female parts or the pollen given and the pollen receiving parts before their flowers even open. So you don't have to worry about somebody down the street or across the road or even in your own backyard, something a bee coming in and making them into something you didn't plan. Uh-huh. It's nice when you start to have a victory and to get what you expected. And so start with one of these easy five crops and get your feet under you. Do that for a year or two and then branch out into hybrids, branch out into the other vegetables, which can be more difficult because there's more rules that apply, especially with cross-pollination. How's that? Perfect. So there is a bunch of questions tonight. Thank you all for shooting them over. And I'd like to get to them all. Yeah, I'm going to have to kind of keep you on a short leash here. John from Ridgefield, Washington says, I ate a lot of popcorn. Last year, I tried to grow a variety that I enjoy, Japanese hullless popcorn. I had to dry the ears indoors because of early rains, but the popcorn doesn't pop well and has small, hard kernels. Is it worth saving seeds and trying again? Oh, it's always worth saving seeds and trying again. What you can learn to do. So if you have enough, you could even do it now. What I would do is take, you know, a couple of hundred seeds and put them in a pan and pop them. Only this time you're going to look at them really carefully. And you're going to try to look and see what the seeds look like that pop well, all right? Uh, I mean, it's kind of hard because once they pop, they're gone and you don't know what it looks like anymore. But if you'll start with 20, 50, 100 seeds and just kind of get familiar with it, and you do this a couple of times, you can always look at what the seeds look like that don't pop, and that will help you uh, out. 
All right? Uh-huh. So then go back through all the seed that you have and only plant those that you think look like the ones that pop. Okay? Nice. And that way you're selecting for better popping corn. This is what Earl Redenbacher did for decades. You know, the best popping corn in America, mm-hmm. no genetic modification, no tricks, no smoke and mirrors. That guy actually did what I just said. He actually looked at nice. it, popped yeah. it, and hand-selected, some say for 40 years. And that's wow. why we have the good popping corn we have. So you can do that with any corn. Just follow his lead and turn yours into it. So definitely go for it. So Ginger from Peoria, Arizona says, Bill, what is the best procedure to plant seeds that come from seed pods on golden barrel cactus? Any thoughts on that? You know, I'm not familiar with the seed pods on golden barrel cactus. Generally, you know, cactus seeds have to be planted soon after they're ready. They don't store very well. So that's just a general thing. You know, one of the world's great collections of cactus seed, and I would argue probably cactus seed starting knowledge, is right there in Phoenix at the Desert Botanical Garden. Oh, yeah. And so that might be a great question to direct their way because they would have specific information about that specific cactus. And so I'm not going to answer any further than that except that always plant fresh seed if you can. That I do know. Perfect. And that's Ginger in Peoria. So that's Peoria, Arizona. So that's a short jaunt for you, Ginger. Randy says from Yakult, Washington, can you freeze seeds that you save? Oh, yeah. You know, you want to make sure they're dry first. Yep. And if you put them in a freezer, you want to make sure they're in a moisture-proof container of some kind. Mm-hmm. And regular plastic bags are not. Even right. freezer bags, in a, right. they call them, or you know, four mil, you know, Ziplocs or whatever, eventually allow moisture in. So use glass jars, use hardened acrylic plastic, something that is impermeable to moisture if you're going to put your seeds in a freezer because you don't want them to get moist. The whole idea in saving seeds for a long period of time is cool, dark, and dry. And so you want to make sure they're dry. In other words, I wouldn't bag up seeds I was going to put in a refrigerator or freezer in Arizona on a rainy day or the day after a rainy day. You know, I was driving through Phoenix a few years ago and they said, you know, the temp was 99 and the humidity is zero. Is that possible? (laughs) You know, you get the point. You get down to 10 or 12% moisture on a normal Phoenix day, and you're fine. So bag them up on a dry day. Yeah. You know, when they're in a freezer, usually they're dark, so that's good. Yep. And then just keep the moisture out. Cool. I think we cover that in depth on our Seed Saving Hacked webinar, do we not? We do. Yeah. That's part of what we're doing, yeah. Perfect. So Joe from New River says, where can I get corn seeds for the Phoenix area? Ooh, the Great American Seed Up. <laughs> yeah, greatamericanseedup.org. There are a couple of seed libraries down in the basin there, aren't there now? There's one in Mesa and yeah. one in Temp. last time I looked. Yeah, so we check might with check. that. Uh, our biggest challenge here in the Phoenix metro area was we have 4.7 million people or so, and we don't have a lot of seed libraries and places, repository for ongoing seeds. So this is where you might have to you know, buy some, grow it out, and contribute them to a seed library. Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the Great American Seed Up will not start till this fall again. So that's right. not going to be a choice for you. One of the other ideas, and I've seen this pulled off successfully, if you're an enterprising person, advertise a seed exchange right where you are. You know, your mm. church, your club, wherever, your neighborhood, and get the word out all around you that you're going to have a seed exchange potluck dinner 
And uh, every, these are all the people that grow and have seeds. And if you really want to learn about your neighborhood and where you live and who's up and running, this yeah. is how you do it. Because everybody who has seeds will go, I'm going. That's a great idea. I'd love to go to this neighborhood yeah. and share some of my seeds. And my guess is that if you did that, there'll be a half a dozen varieties of corn that walk in that have been grown within 10 miles of where you are successfully. And not only will you get the seeds, but you'll get the stories on yeah. how to do it and what to watch out for. Now, Beautiful. you may not be a person like that, that you can't do that. So where do you buy them then? Well, there's a couple of places. We're still blessed to have Native Seed Search in Tucson, Arizona. Yep. They're online and sell seeds. They have about 500 varieties of corn going back 2,000 years. That is a place to find corn that's been adapted to the Southwest for a long time. Perfect. So, Rudy, this is a curious question. I'm not quite sure that there's an answer for it, Rudy, but Rudy says, does carbonated water have an effect on plants? The only thing I can come up with here is this question that they live in a place that, you know, carbonated water bubbles out of the aquifer and can they use it on plants? Lots of times when carbonated water comes out of the ground, it has natural gas in it. So be careful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. I've heard of it, those springs catching on fire. I've never been around it or seen it. If Go you ahead. get an answer, write it into us. Yeah. Yeah. No you find out. I'm, I am curious. Yeah. So, Randy, I'm not quite sure what this question is. I have a strain of bush green beans that I started 10 years ago, and they are still producing. My question is, will these seeds eventually stop producing? So, is this a perennial green bean? I can't imagine that it is. So, I'm wondering if he's saving the seeds every year and growing them out. So let's go with the second one, Bill, that he's saving the seeds yeah. every year and growing them out. Will they eventually stop producing? No, probably not. There's a thing called inbred depression. Ah, uh, It's a yep. genetic bottleneck can happen in certain plants, as it does in humans, right? We uh -huh. don't marry our cousins anymore, to use genetic speak, because deleterious recessives will find each other and start expressing. And lots of times, some of the first that come in in plants are a loss of vigor. The plants just kind of wilt. They don't get as big. You know, they look like they're sick and maybe even not produce offspring. Most likely to happen in what we call outcrossing crops, crops that absolutely have to have pollen from another plant. Yeah. Lots of other plants to keep healthy populations. Beans are the opposite of that. Right. Beans are an almost perfectly self-pollinating plant. If you want to keep a healthy population of them going, five plants, five to 10 to 12, and they will outlive you. They'll, they'll be more vigorous than you right. will, probably. So yeah, no fear there. Perfect. So Dennis from Deposit New York says, how do I store seeds at home for future use? I've been finding packets of seeds all over the house that never made it into the garden in previous years. And what is the typical shelf life for seeds? Well, there is no typical, and maybe you should get some counseling, a seed hoarder. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I say no. I you say that see. lovingly because yeah, we because all do I, it. Yeah, we all do that, and so maybe we do need counseling. I don't know. Let me give you maybe the most important bit of scientific knowledge I know about that. Well, I'll say a couple of things. First of all, Dr. Bruce Bugby at Utah State University, and you can Google up his original papers in their scientific papers part of Google now, I think. He got a contract to do research on seed storage from NASA so that we would know what the parameters were so that we could take seeds to Mars. Because if we go to Mars, we're going to have to be there for nine months or so before we can come back to wait for the planets to line up again in the right way. And so we're going to be growing food on Mars. What he discovered, his takeaway thing was that do not let your seeds get above 80 
degrees Fahrenheit. All right. So use that as the upper limit for all your storage around the house. Yeah. Just don't get them warm. Once you get them above 80 for a little while, they start dying off faster. You may still get 10 years out of some of the seeds in a packet or a jar or a box, but that more of them will die faster if they've been above 80. And if you keep them below that, keep them cool, dark, and dry and below 80 degrees, they can last for decades if not hundreds of years. There is yeah. no typical. There really isn't. You know, onions, they're supposed to be the things that go first. And if you look at seeds longevity charts, they say one year, you know. We opened up a can of 40-year-old onion seeds, 40 years old, and got 80% germination. And I always had over 90% germination from my 10-year-old tomato seed. Yeah. If you lived in Louisiana and it was humid every day, you know, they wouldn't be dry, just storing them on the shelf in your house, even if you did keep them cool. So that would cut into longevity. But here in Arizona or wherever you, you know, you're just going to have to judge that. They're going to last a lot longer than you think. And just remember this, even if most of them die, still have some. All it takes is one. Yeah. If it's a special variety, it's something your grandma gave you, you know, never give up on them. Always plant them. And seeds protect seeds. If you think that seeds are really old or they've been misstored, you think they might be dead and you don't know what to do with them, dig into the middle and get the seeds because the seeds around the outside of them are almost perfect insulation. They absorb moisture. They keep the conditions for the inner ones almost perfect every time. So as a community, some of the seeds will probably always work. All right. So just remember that too. Yeah. Perfect. Terry from Aurora, Colorado says, love it. Buy seeds better. She says, thanks, Bill. Norman from Northbrook says, Greg, I have a difficult time growing seed for biannual crops such as kale, jarred beets. So Northbrook is northern Illinois. He says to me, so he's addressing this to me, Greg, can you walk me through the process that works best for you? meaning me, to save seeds. Norman, I'm sorry, I've lived in the desert for 52 years. <laughs> so those are really easy for me to grow. But the good news is, is, is that Bill is a longtime cool season grower. So I'll bet you've got something to say about that, don't you? Yeah. So what, what were the vegetables again? Talk Carrots, about? kale, shard, beets, the root crops. Yeah. That, it looks like the root crops and the brassicas. Okay, so the kale and the chard, almost everybody in the United States can leave in the ground. They're biennials, so just leave them in the ground. If you want to, you could cut them back a little. You know, if you are in a place or have a year where you don't get any snow at all, snow is a wonderful insulating blanket. Then what you want to do is mulch them, you know, six inches, eight inches, 12 inches of straw or leaves or something over the top of them at mm -hmm. the end of the year and just mulch them and let them come back on their own. What you want to do, if you've planted them really close together just because you've been harvesting it all year, thin them out so that there's one plant every two feet or so for both chart and kale because they'll get enormous flowers on them oh, yeah. when they come up the next year. So that's what I would do with those. Now, the carrots and the beets are really great in that you can pull them up and you can taste them. So, you know, what you should do with your carrots at the end of the year is pull up all your carrots and line them out, pull up all your beets and line them all out and pick out the most beautiful, the ones that are 
archetypal for you, the ones that you really, really like, and then take a little slice out of it, okay? If you're doing beat, uh, do it out of the side. You don't want to mm-hmm. cut off the tap root of a beat, but you can take a little sliver out of the side of the beat. So pick your best ones that look the best. Take a little slice out of each of those. Taste them. Make sure that you're getting only the best tasting ones. And then in Illinois, what I would do is store them in a root cellar if you've got one. Store them in damp sawdust in a place like at 40 degrees in a walk-in cooler if that's what you have to do. Same with carrots. And then the next spring, you can take them out. You know, what you want to do is trim the greens off, leave an inch or two on the top, and replant them at two-foot spacing and let them go to seed. All right? And carrots, you could actually cut the taproot off. I usually just take a little piece out of the side if I'm tasting my carrots. Mm-hmm. But in that way, you can improve both carrot and beet crops in wow. your backyard for what you want in a relatively short period of time. They both need cold, maybe 40 days of cold, and that's why you put them back in a root cellar or a refrigerator. Or if you're in an area that gets lots of snow consistently or you've got lots of mulch, you can plant them back out into the yard in the fall and mulch them really well. What you don't want is like 20 below weather with no snow cover because mm-hmm. then they'll freeze dry and get killed and won't come up the next year. Some of them won't. Maybe that's what you want to select for. Say all of them die except for one carrot, but it makes it. Bingo. We've got a carrot to survive 20 below, you know? Yeah. So all these disasters can be, you know, work in your favor. I hope you get the gist of what I'm trying to teach you here. So Yeah, perfect. Oh, my gosh. I'm really excited about this next question, not specifically for the question, but from where it is coming from. Morgan, I had to look up where you're at. Monhagen Island is in Maine, and it's an island off of the east coast of Maine, and it looks like it's off a few miles. So thanks for tuning in, and great that you're saving seeds. Morgan's question is, where do you look when you are trying to find out if a variety has a PVP or patent. You're going to have to do some explaining here so people know what PVP or patent is. Well, in the ever-marching movement to privatize and make a commodity and make money out of everything in our modern society, and I won't Mm -hmm. get into arguments whether that's good or bad or whatever, seed has been part of that. And seed's actually been a really difficult thing to do that way because, you know, when you buy seeds, you can, it doesn't matter what you pay for them, you can always then grow your own, right? Right. And so that's really been hard for companies to swallow. Every other product they sell you, they have to sell you every time. That's how they make their money. They go. They put all the money into developing a new variety. They don't want you to be able to just take it from them after you purchase it once. That's not the business model. So after relentless, almost 100 years of lobbying, in 1970, following seven European countries which had done the same thing, legislation was passed in the United States called the Plant Variety Protection Act. And so for the first time, it allowed companies to own new varieties of plants that would produce seeds. And it gave them a 20-year patent on them. So in other words, no one else could grow and save and sell those seeds without getting in touch with the company that had released it and had the patent on it. Now, there was such an outcry, and this was so different than all of, well, human history, right? Where every farmer and gardener had always saved all their own seeds and could. There was an exemption put into that act that said that farmers and gardeners could grow and save their own seeds. It didn't matter if it was patented. What they couldn't do was sell it or exchange it. And this is a bit of a problem for the seed library movement. Because it's not legal to have 
even what we call PVP or plant variety protection varieties in uh, seed libraries. Okay, so big problem. So how do you find out? We'll get to your question. It is required that every variety in every catalog that has this patent, it says that. It's expected that you'll find PVP. And I've found this designation in a number of catalogs. And I found more of them than ever recently. Uh -huh. So look for that. However, that's not good enough. If you will Google up plant variety protection on the web, you can find the USDA website where you can actually search for the names of varieties that hold plant variety protection. However, sometimes even then, varieties that are protected don't come up. And that's yeah. because they've used PVP to patent genetics inside the plant or characteristics of plants from time to time. And so it doesn't have anything to do with a variety name. And so that happens in a few cases. And so the only real way to tell in the end or the place that we should probably demand the most responsibility is in the place that you buy it. If you yeah. have any question at all, ask the seed company that's providing your seeds. Write to them. Help me. Write to them and ask for a complete list of everything they sell that has a patent because now we're seeing utility patents on plants which are even more restrictive than PVP and that they don't even allow the exemption for gardeners and farmers to save their own seeds. And those lists are even more incomplete. So good question. Well, we really need to put the catalog's feet to the fire to tell us because it's ultimately their responsibility. Well, one would think so. Well, they're buying these seeds from somebody who has a patent on them. Yeah. And the people that have the patent don't want people saving them. They want everyone to know there's a patent on it. So yeah. it's sort of shirking their responsibilities to the company they buy them from if they don't list the PVP. But as I said, I found numerous mistakes in catalogs that are out right mm -hmm. now. So you can't depend on it in the end. Just keep asking questions, all right? Yeah. Terry from Aurora, Colorado says, please repeat the five starter crops again. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tomatoes, peppers, peas, beans, lettuce. Perfect. If you wrote those down carefully, let me add a couple of others to it because we're starting to garden grains. Oh, yes. And so add wheat and oats and rice and barley to that list. Actually, four of them. Yeah. And they're easy to save, too. Self-pollinating. See, so just grow one wheat plant in a pot on your deck. The seeds will be good. And we're actually asking people to help us do that. We're trying to source more and more seed for heritage and ancient grain mm -hmm. as we try to bring back local grain economies. And so if you're interested in doing that, get in touch with me, Bill, at RockyMountainSeeds.org. If you just want to grow a really cool heirloom grain on your porch, we have a yeah. program for you. Nice. I run the fruit tree program here in Phoenix, and I also do Urban Farm Podcast at UrbanFarmPodcast.com. And I interviewed a guy out of Maine recently, and he came and saw me at the fruit tree program, and he brought mm. me a bag of rice that was grown in mm. Maine. I believe it was Sun had grown it out. Sitting on my dinner table, Not it's still in the bag, but I'm going to cook it out here soon, and I'll be reaching out to him to have him on the podcast, because that's rice grown in Maine. Got to love that. Well, guess what? The upland rices, the kinds that you don't need a rice patty, mm -hmm. you can grow them in regular uh -huh. garden, have been around for a long, long time. That was actually the focus for Thomas Jefferson. He introduced 103 varieties of upland rice oh, into wow. his yard thinking that that would be America's first industrial agricultural crop. And some of those varieties are still around, you know, and it's really <laughs> exciting. It. They've been all up and down the East Coast. Yeah, we're trying some here. I'll let you know once we get our desert-adapted varieties. Perfect. Hill says, 
okay, then I will trust my old cilantro seeds that they will grow. They also say, I finally found a good and spicy serrano and jalapeno, but can't get them to sprout. Let me throw my suggestion in and, and then I'll let you. Yeah, no, go for it. it. So what I might do with that is I would dry the seeds make sure they're dry, and then I would do a germination test on them. Usually when we do germination tests, we put 100 seeds between some water-absorbent paper or napkins. I would do probably one seed at a time, and then when it sprouted, I would plant the dang thing in the ground. What are your thoughts, Bill? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can just try to Don Tipping at Cisco Seeds now does Petri dishes. They put oh. a little piece of paper towel in a Petri dish yep. and lay the seeds out in there and keep them moist, you know, until they start to germinate. So there you go. make sure that your peppers fully ripen before you get the seeds out. Let those peppers ripen on the plants if you can. If you're in an area where, you know, the season ends, you have to bring them in, pull the whole plant and hang it upside down in your garage and let everything dry out. You know, those are ways oh, that yeah. you can get more vi vibrant Perfect. and vital seeds out of peppers. Peppers don't usually don't need anything special to germinate. They just don't. So Jesse asks pretty much the same question. Jesse from Alcalde. He says, starting a seed library, give us some seeds that have been stored in paper bags from 2008. Should I test the viability before I grow them out? That's what I would do. Yeah, well, if you just take up room and space in your yard or garden and that's at a premium, then yeah, you're wasting something just to try them. So, uh -huh. you know, doing a germ test could save you time and energy. On the other hand, if you've got lots of room and you don't have time to do a germ test, growing them out is testing them to see if they work, right. you know? Exactly. So you can do it either way, whatever is easiest for you. If you're going to put them into a library and they're that way, just be completely honest and complete with the story. Wow, these came in paper bags from 2008, you know? So everybody knows what they're getting. They don't have to be perfect, you know? that Again, that's one of those industrial seed company constructs. Oh, we have to have everything perfect before we, you know, put it in packets and make it available. No, not in our seed libraries. We just have to be open and honest and communicate well with what we have and let the community figure out what it has the time and energy to take on. Yeah, perfect. Perfect, perfect. Well, I think, let me just click refresh one more time. Yeah, we are at the end of the questions. We're also pretty close to the end of our hour. So any last thoughts on sourcing seeds before we wrap this puppy up, Bill? Well, you know, again, seed exchange could be the best thing that could happen to your life, to your garden to your neighborhood, to your community. So if you don't have one around you, start one. These have become an institution in Canada now. They call them CD Saturdays. And now oh, I see yes. they have CD Sundays. There are hundreds of them. There are new lists of seed exchanges up now. So you could even Google up one of those. So it doesn't have to be, it's just a once a year thing where you get together with the people that want to grow food in and around you or flowers or medicinals or whatever it is. And you can exchange seeds and ideas and stories. And those stories sometimes are the most valuable part of it. You know, one of the seeds that showed up in Tucson at Native Seed Search when I was the director there was Mrs. Burns Lemon Basil. And you go, well, oh, what's yes. that? Well, Mrs. Burns brought that to Tucson in 1900. She loved basil. It was a lemony kind of flavored one, and she grew and saved the seeds and gave them to her neighbors, and it became a bit of an institution. It's in the seed libraries down there now. They're great Pima County Seed Library. And so, you know, that, how would you know that? Just buying a packet of basil seeds. 
right? Wouldn't it be nice to have one that's been grown for 100 years right down the street uh, yeah, with a story good. and a face? I mean, that's what can happen in your seed exchange. So, again, don't feel constrained if you don't have one because you can be the person that starts one. That's my tip for the day. Cool. I was just going to jump over to if you want more training, we've got all kinds of resources for you, but go ahead. Oh, that's exactly where I was going to. Brilliant minds think alike. Patting myself on the back here. So check out SeedSchoolOnline.com. That is our seven-week online seed school training. What have you got coming up, Bill, through Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance? This Saturday, we've got a one-day seed school in Prescott, Arizona. Oh, yes. A couple weeks after that, we're going to be in Flagstaff, Arizona. We've got a seed school teacher training at the Posner Center in Denver the third week in April. If you want to change the world, we'll give you the tools. This is activism powered by seeds and seed stories. And you'll get to spend a week with some of the smartest and best people around the country that want to do this. And together, we'll figure out how to transform the world. That's coming up. We're doing a seven-day seed school at Sterling College in Vermont, a residential program. The great John Navazio, one of the best public breeders in the country, will be there and part of the staff for us, helping us there. John's an old friend. That's in the first week on August. So those oh, are all nice. things. We keep a list of that at our website, RockyMountainSeeds.org. So if you want to go and check um, updated, if you want a seed school where you are, we need a great partner. We need a place to have it. We've got all the stuff to help organize and make it work, but you know we go where we're pulled. And so that's why yeah. we're doing the one-day seed schools you know, all over the place. So there was actually one question that I didn't answer because I was going to follow up with Hill afterwards. So Hill says, I don't have it in front of me, but so I'm paraphrasing. Do you ever need a place to offer trainings at? He's here in Phoenix. He or she is here in Phoenix. So, you know, if you're willing to take on a residential seed school, we've done them here before. That's a possibility. Here in Phoenix, we have almost 20,000 people on our urban farm email list locally here in Phoenix. So we have a lot of reach, so that that could help. So there's always that. You know, Greg, it's probably time to do one again. Probably time to do one again. Yeah, here's what we need. We need somebody to take it on and say this is going to happen no matter what. Because here in Phoenix, we've got the resources to make it happen, but I don't have the energy to go out and do it. No, or and so. neither do we. That's number one. Yeah. We need somebody that wants to do it. We need a place to do it. And we need a fresh local organic food for lunch. Because that's part, we're going to walk the taco, as Dr. (laughs) Gary Knopf does, you know. We do, and we need that food, and it becomes part and parcel of what we do. So if you can put those things together, you know, let us know. Go to the RockyMountainSeeds.org website. We have directories. You can find other seed stewards, people that are interested, seed teachers. We've trained 60 seed teachers now throughout the country. You can get our list of small bioregional seed companies that are great sources for seeds. Some of the new seed co-ops like Snake River Seed Co-op, Sierra Seed Co-op in California, or Triple Divide Seeds up in Montana. Those are all great places, you know, to start your seed adventure. So, again, I want to end by not disparaging buying seeds at all. I just put it, you know, at the end of the list now because I think there's so many other exciting things going. But I do love, and I buy seeds every year. I'm just as crazy as everyone else, you know. The more (laughs) diversity, the better. And it's always great to get excited and passionate about something new. So, you know, that's the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for showing up this evening. We had a great class tonight. There was about 60 people online with us. Thank you for calling in and being part of it. And thank you, Bill, for another great seed chat. Well, I'll see you next month, huh? We do it again. As I like to say, farm out, and we will catch you on the flip side. 
Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today's bonus podcast is a rebroadcast of our monthly seed class where our seed expert Bill McDormand shares some seed wisdom and discusses news and concerns that might occupy the thoughts of those of us that are saving seeds. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.